All right, welcome to this week's episode of our show, True Data Ops. I'm your host, Kent Graziano, the Data Warrior. Each episode, we try to bring you a podcast covering all things data ops with the people that are making data ops what it is today. If you've not yet done so, be sure to look up and subscribe to the Data Ops Live YouTube channel, where you'll find all the recordings of our past episodes. It's now summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, so if you missed any episodes, you might want to catch up while you're relaxing somewhere at the beach or on a road trip this summer for some nice, easy listening with the True Data Ops podcast. Now, today we have a special episode with uh, one of my buddies here, Guy Adams, who's the CTO and co-founder of Data Ops Live, and he's the co-author of the book Data Ops for Dummies. Welcome back to the show, Guy. Thanks, Kent. Great to be here. So uh, in case, you know, there, there's people out there listening to our show, picking up, picking this up new that, that don't know you, uh, could you give us just a, a quick background on yourself and your, your career in data management? Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually only been in the data world for about five years, which is as long as I've been using Snowflake. Actually, I came in, I really, I, my back to, the, before that, my background was probably 20 years in the software engineering world. So I, I've been through the agile DevOps CICD journey many, many times and, you know, when I came to the data world, that was really the the start. That was the spark for us to look at data ops as a, as a concept, and ultimately with you, you know, build the true data ops philosophy because you know, we saw so much analogy between what we're doing in the software world generally and, and and the challenges of the data world. But in particular, relevant to today's session, the analogies between data products, which is really where a lot of the data world is moving, and the software products that we've been building for many many years. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thanks. Um, so. Last week was uh, Snowflake Summit. So before we get started talking to diving deep on data products, uh, just wanted to check with you to see how Summit was this year and you know how your sessions went. Oh, it's I mean Summit was crazy. You know, every year it's bigger, every year it's better, every year there are more and more announcements. You know, the 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 Snowflake push into application development is is enormous. The Snowflake push into um, you know the new uh, generative AI is enormous. But it, it's really, really relevant for what we're talking about because ultimately all of these new capabilities all need to be wrapped up into something. They all need to be packaged in a way that can be managed, controlled, delivered to the rest of the world. And, and the, you know, pretty much the de facto way of doing that is becoming data products. So you know, although there was a, a wide range of um, announcements and new functionality in, in lots of different areas, actually data products is, is the common theme across all of them. It's the common way to wrap those together. I did a session specifically on data products, actually focusing just in the Snowpark piece. So um, particularly Snowpark for Python, which um, you know is kind of you know how you can bring your your Python application code to the data and run it inside the the, the, you know, the Snowflake infrastructure. Um, but all of that was about okay, I've, I've got my I've, I've written my code. I know I need to bring it to the data, but how do I package it up? How do I version it? How do I lifecycle it? How do I deploy it? Um, and yeah, the, if you were interested, I think the recording for that will go live in the next week or two, and um, I'm sure links will be on our on our LinkedIn page. So follow yeah. us there. And, uh, and, and you'll be able to see that if you didn't make it to Summit. Right. And, you know, if you can't find it that way, everybody can go to snowflake.com slash summit. Um, the agenda is there. And uh, if you, uh, you have, I think you have to register in order to be able to see it. If you attended Summit but missed Guy's session, then you should be able to see the recording there. Uh, they said it was going to be a week or so and everything will be up. So um, make sure you, you definitely want to want to check that out. All right, so what you just described, and especially this move into native apps and app development and all of that, it's starting to sound more and more like the 
software development world you and I both came out of, right? It's mm-hmm. like everything old is new again, right? So so even more apropos now our, our conversation about about data products. And, you know, there's all this talk about data products. We hear about it everywhere. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't understand it. So let's, we need to start out with what the heck is a data product anyway. So you need to tell us about that. Yeah, so it, I guess the where most people have, have initially come across data products, you know, many will know, um, you know, Zamak Degani came out with a concept of data mesh a number of years ago, and data products are actually data as a product is one of the four foundational pillars of, of data mesh. But in many ways, the, one of the reasons it's become so popular is it's actually independent of the other three. There's lots of organizations who are approaching data products and seeing data products as a really valuable way of delivering in this other organization that maybe aren't ready or don't want to go down the other three pillars. So it's first of all, it's important to understand that data product exists as a concept outside of data mesh. And, and you know, they're extremely valuable inside of data mesh architecture, but they're just as valuable outside. And one of the things that's worth um, disambiguating is actually what, what Zamak talks about is data as a product. And I got the question probably 15 times last week at Summit. So what is the difference? There's, a, big di- there's a difference. Yeah, well, what is the difference? And actually, a lot of people say, are, they, are these competing philosophies? Are these, you know, actually, really all they are is, is different sides of the same coin. Data as a product is a way of thinking. I think about my data as a product. The data product itself is what happens from that. So when a team says, we are going to approach data as a product, we're going to adopt this as a philosophy, what they end up building is data product. So one is the thought process, one is the essentially the outcome or the output of that, but they're not competing, they're not they're not different. They're not distinct. Just one is a thought process and one is an actual tangible thing that you go ahead and, and build and deploy. So you can, re- you can regard the two terms as broadly interchangeable. Um, but the way, I, the way I kind of explain data products to people is it depends whether they come from the software world or the, or the data world. If they come from the software world, I would say a data product is very much in the data world what a microservice was in the software world. You know, in, in the software world, we'll develop lines of code, libraries, tests, user interfaces. We'll deploy microservices will publish and version APIs. And th- those are all extremely non-controversial, well-understood things. In the data world, for a data product, we'll develop um, ELT, ETL workloads. We will develop transformations. We'll develop table definitions, view definitions, native apps. We will deploy data products, but the data product becomes the base unit we deploy. In the same way, you, know, you don't deploy a line of code or a library or a test. You deploy the microservice. And it's got lots of those other things in it. The same thing, we've got lots and lots of component parts inside a data product, but the data product becomes the base unit of management. It becomes that, that first-class citizen that we that we think about everything else in the context of it's part of a data product. And then when we publish in version, instead, we're not publishing and version APIs per se, we're publishing in version data product interfaces, which might be user interfaces, they might be REST interfaces, they might simply be SQL interfaces on top of standard tables and views. You know, there's, we're not necessarily, we don't have to move away from many of the paradigms that are you know, extremely well understood in the data world. Um, yeah, so uh, I know a lot of people tend to think of, and I know I first was thinking of this as, you know, uh, data marts. Mm-hmm. We need to build in the data warehousing world. We built a data mart and that's what we delivered. And so that the data mart itself could be a data product, right? It, it Certainly in terms of what it outputs. I think the biggest difference is for, for people that have come from, from that data world, it's less about what you're building and more about how you're building it. So yes, in your data mark, you would have had some ingestions, some transformations, some, you know, and, and ultimately you'd have produced a set of tables and views and materialized views. And you may, in a data product, produce exactly the same things. The real difference is, is it's all of the process around it. So in a data in, in a data mark project, you'd have had a beginning, a middle, an end. 
you'd have had a project manager rather than owner, you'd have had a scope that you defined, and then you'd have resisted changes to that scope. And ultimately, you know, it would have taken typically months to get live. In a data product, we think about things in terms of roadmaps and life cycles, but you know, but it's not a start, middle, and end. It's a continual ongoing journey. We have a data product owner rather than a product manager. But one of the biggest differences and just in terms of thinking is in the data product world, we encourage and embrace changes. We're not resisting changes. We don't regard scope creep as a bad thing. We say changes are good because changes mean that we are moving closer towards what the business needs. Did we say that in Agile? Yeah, we did. The, that was an Agile principle. Yeah, it was very much just an Agile came out principle. of the software development world. Exactly. And, and so, yeah. you know, data products are really just a manifestation of taking those Agile principles from the software world. If we apply those to data development, what do we end up with? We end up with data products, which, again, as you said, may look a bit like data marts. They may have tables and views, and you can have all sorts of different you know, data architectures in there. But the principles and the processes around which we build that are quite different. And ultimately, you know, the, 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 the value of this is, is, is about business value. It's about getting, you know, cha- predominantly, it's about getting changes live faster. You know, a data mart would typically take months to build and launch. A data product, we're talking about making changes in hours and days. So that's, that's the real kind of fundamental business. Rap- rapid iteration. Also very, very from rapid. Agile. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like with our software, we always say you'll never use version 1.0 of any piece of software, you know, and there's 1.0, 1.0. 0.1 and then 1.2 and 1.5.6.7. And so we're talking about doing the same thing with data now. Yep. Right. As exactly. a data product. We're going to think in the same use applying that kind of thinking. Yeah. And, okay, and, well, and version, yeah. I mean, since you mentioned it, Kevin, I mean, versioning is one of those things that, you know, it in the software world, it's been around since the dawn of time. You know, nobody remembers a piece of software that didn't have a version on it. And yet, you know, I could count on one hand in the last five years the number of we call them data products, but the number of data marks, the number of data artifacts, whatever you want to call them, that have been actually affected. And I think yeah. it's one of the biggest differences, and it's one of the biggest things that are holding people in the data world back. Because you know, once you build this this data product or the, whatever you call it, whatever you historically called it, as soon as you give it to people, whether you commit to it or not, there's an expectation of backwards compatibility. There's an expectation that you're not just going to change things because you know, other people have built you know, for something from the simplest dashboard right down to you know, their own custom applications on top of it. So you've got this commitment, whether it's explicit or implicit, of backwards compatibility. And the problem is, at some point, for very good business reasons, very good technical reasons, you'll need to change that. And you've now got two sort of conflicting things. On one hand, I've got to keep it the same. On the other hand, I've got to change it. And the only effective way, and the way the software world has, has squared the circle for decades, has been, right, I'll leave version one alone. I will now you know, create version two. Version two will have all my new stuff in. I will give my users three months, six months, nine months, whatever's appropriate to migrate from version one to version two. And then version two becomes you know, the, 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 the right version. And you know, at some point in, in 18 months' time, I might start to build version three. But that concept of versioning data products or versioning data models or whatever just historically hasn't existed in the data world. And it's one of the biggest limitations for, for data teams. Yeah. Okay. Well, well that, that makes quite a bit of sense. So one of the criticisms of data mesh and data product concepts is that they're, they're, they're pretty abstract to, to most folks. So um, can you help us a little bit, get a little more concrete and define, you know, really define a data product in particular, you know, what's a good data product look like? I'm going to, so you know, many people will be, or will have come across fair principles, um, you know, and fair, you know, the fair principles are, are good, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're another good kind of high level abstract, but I don't think they go far enough and they're not pragmatic enough to really define, you know, what good looks like. So we've defined 10 characteristics, 10 attributes of a data product that 
ultimately, if you are scoring well in these 10 areas, you've got a really, really good data product. That doesn't mean you have to do all this at once. And I, I stress that. We, we did a lot of work with people on like what maturity looks like. But seven of those 10 characteristics are about the data product itself. So you know, the first one is, you know, first one is accessible. You've got to produce the output of your data product has got to be in a way that's useful, accessible, and understandable to your target consumers. You know, if you build something that people want to put a BI report on top of, but you save a bunch of XML files into a file system, you've done all of the work, you've probably produced the right data, but you've produced it in a way that's just not accessible to your target audience. Um, so you know, accessible is a, is a really important principle. Um, interoperable and composable. This is a much more advanced one because what we're saying is as I, as I build these, what, what, what I would call foundational data products. Foundational data product is where I've ingested some data. I'm doing some amount of transformation and I'm publishing the results, but it's based on reading new data in. But where the most advanced organizations are getting the best value is saying, right, I've, I've got a set of foundational data products, but now other people in my organization are taking, building new data products with existing foundational data products as their inputs. So it's it's you know it's that Lego building block. I'm taking and, and the, the obvious example, the easiest one to define is a, a customer 360 view. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but you know I need to take sales data and customer data and marketing data. You know, so those would all be foundational data products which are read in from external systems, and then I build a new data product called customer 360 which reads in from those other data products. But that only works well if you're building your data products with thoughts about interoperability. You know, like a customer ID is the customer ID standardized across all these things and composable. Have I built these things in a way that these things are designed to plug together? Most yes. people still think about what they're producing as, you know, can I give it to a, a, an analyst or a BI analyst? They're not thinking about how does the output of what I'm producing work as the input for someone else building a more sophisticated, a more advanced, a more aggregate data product. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so, so from a, a data mesh perspective, those foundational data products would potentially be coming from what they call in data mesh domain teams, different domains, yeah. right? Absolutely. But, yeah. but the, again, they have to be thinking about who's the consumer. Yeah. I mean, I'll give, the, you another, I'll give you another great example. And, and even these even these composed, these composite data products still often belong in the domain team. So, you know, one of our good customers is, you know, a company called OneWeb in the satellite communication space, and they produce data products for different parts of the system. You know, we're data product for the for the satellite terminal, data product for the spacecraft itself, a data product for the for the Earth station where the data lands. And those data products represent their own pieces. But if you want an end-to-end -end view of what, what service my customer's experiencing, I need to assemble all of those data products together to get an end-to-end -end view of what the customer experiences. So they have a completely another different domain that's not responsible for any of those pieces. They respond for the end. They're responsible for the end-to-end, -end, the customer journey, if you like. Um, and so they don't produce any data of their own right. What they do is take data products that are produced by the other departments, the technical departments, and they aggregate them together to produce these kind of user journey end-to-end -end data products, which are some of the most valuable for the business. Makes sense. So the third, the third principle we talk about, and we've talked about a little bit, but it's backwards compatibility, you know, and that, that goes with multi-versioning. If you are, as soon as you've advertised a data product as um, a, to a set of consumers, they're expecting backwards compatibility, whether you offer it or not. And really in the data product world, you should be offering it as part of the, the contract that you offer to people. But it's no good offering that if you're not testing it. You know, it, it can't be something that you just assume, you know, the, oh, well, I'll know if it's broken if my users tell me just just doesn't work in this. Right, a, da a dashboard breaks somewhere, yeah. right? Yeah. You you have to be proactively, not, not even monitoring, you have to be preventing. You know, you need to get to the point where when a user or an engineer is making a change, the system needs to say, by the way, if you make that change, you're going to break backwards compatibility. I'm going to prevent you from doing it. Or at the very least, I'm going to force you to jump through some hoops to override this if you do want to break it, you know. 
And most of the time, what will happen is you say, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. I can actually solve this problem another way, which doesn't break backwards compatibility. I'm not going to rename this column. I'm going to create a new column for my new purpose and then leave the old column alone for, as a simple example. So right. backwards compatibility and automated backwards compatibility testing is, is hugely important. And then that feeds into what we we're talking about before, which is multi-versioning. If you do have a really strong, compelling reason to break backwards compatibility, build a second version, run the two versions in parallel for a period of time, and then end of life, end of life the old one. Right. Um, Trustworthy. This, you know, this is a fairly basic one, but it covers more than just things like you know people think about correctness and data quality, but it's also things like completeness. It's guarantees about timeliness. It's it's the complete gamut of information that a business user needs to say yes, I am going to make potentially million dollar business decisions based on the data that you're providing me in the, in this data product. Um, one that a lot of people struggle with, particularly in the data world, is exclusive. A data product, and particularly the data product interface, the bit that you are exposing to your consumers, must be an exclu the exclusive and the only way to access the data. There must be no backdoors. Yeah, so if you, yeah. think, you think about this in the software world, you know, you've got a Postgres database and some code and then a REST API. If you've got some data in the database and someone wants access to it, but it's not in your API, you know, would you ever dream of giving your downstream consumers just username and access to the database? Yeah, would, don't. It would, it would be unthinkable. You'd 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 say right if you know it would go to the product owner. The product owner would say it's a valid request. Lots of people want it. We'd go onto the roadmap, and three days later, you know, because they're doing very agile development, it would appear in the API, and everybody's happy. Um, the problem in the data world is that those those behind the scenes, those black box systems may still be tables and views like our presentation. So if, uh, if, the, if the data product interface is a set of tables and views that users have permissions on, roles on, um, it's much easier to say, oh, can you just, can you give my role access to that raw data table? You know, and it's a one-line command, they're already in the database anyway, you know, what's really the harm in it? But actually, the fact that it's technically easy to do in no way, you know, it, mitigates any of the problems about giving people backdoor access because what actually happened now is something that should be a black box that you can change at will now all of a sudden whatever they said to you when they wanted access they're now going to expect that not to change now you have dependencies exactly and as soon as you give someone as soon as you bypass your your published interface and you give someone access behind the scenes effectively you just created another part of the published interface and they're going to expect backwards compatibility and that's really going to hamper you downstream so you know, the 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 interface of a data product must be the exclusive and only way to get access to that data. Well, there's really some governance uh, concerns there as well, right? Oh, Security and governance concerns. Because yeah, now, now somebody, even though that person might have had access to that data, they could now put it in their own data product and mm -hmm. make it visible to somebody else who really shouldn't have access to that data. Exactly. You know, everything is based around the fact that we have an interface. That interface has a set of guarantees, and some of those guarantees, you say, are governance. You know, guarantees like you know, we test that we're not bleeding PII information, for example, through our product, through our, our published interface. We're probably not running the same test against the stuff behind the scenes because we don't need right. to because everything yeah. needs to go through that. So, there are, you know, you're right. There's a lot of governance and security risk of doing it that way as well. I think the, the the sixth one from a from product perspective is is self-contained. You know, and this is one that I would say more people people struggle with this more than anything else is how big or small should my data product be you know do i have you know, I'll take, I'll take my example of your company in satellite communications do i have one data product that's everything in my entire network do i have a data product just for this one router here or this one switch or this one you know part that's basically up, you know how big or small should my data product be and the problem is there's no easy way to answer that question the, the way i define it more is um you've got to think about it from your consumer's perspective you know there are lots of obvious problems in your data product being too big. If you end up with your data product being everything, you're back to kind of the, the worlds of just kind of data. Well, that's models. a data warehouse. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, <laughs> the microservices were created because they wanted to take these big monolithic things and break them into much smaller manageable components. We're trying to do the same with data. 
So we don't want to leave it too big, but if we make it too small, then people, to, in, in order to get any value out of my data product or this data product, if they also have to use that one and that one, then it's probably too small. So it's, it's a slightly sort of um, glib statement by saying, make your data products as small as possible, but no smaller. No smaller, yes. Yeah. And it comes from the perspective of, can a user, think about my users, think about my expected use cases, can they achieve those expected use cases just using my data product on its own? Is, you know, if they can, you've probably got it about right. And the, the other thing to bear in mind here, and this is where people from a, a data modeling perspective sometimes kind of you know get a bit shaky, is that may mean that certain pieces of information are made available through multiple data products. Let's say the you know, the linkage between a product ID and a product name. Um, in a in a fully normalized world, we might say right that information should exist once and only once. But that information might exist, might be exposed through three or four different data products because they're all showing mm -hmm. different aspects of that. Right. That's okay. There needs yes. to be a single source of truth in the back, in those hidden black boxes, there needs to be a single source of truth. But that source of truth can be presented, can be manifested, can be materialized multiple different times, multiple different ways to, through different data products. So it's not we're not breaching the concept of single source of truth, but single source of truth doesn't mean single, single source interface. And that's, right. a, that's a really key distinction that people struggle well, with. And, and that's where, you know, the, kind of the, the data ops and true data ops aspect of this sort of does, does come in of, you know, having the, the, you have to have the lineage, right? You got, you got to be able to do the dependency analysis. You got to be able to do, have an, a clear audit trail so that you know that it all traces back to mm -hmm. the same, that you, that even if it's exposed in three different data products, it's the same answer in all three data products for that particular piece of data, right? So single source of truth and then multiple, for, for one of better phrase, multiple views on it where those views yes. are optimized for my consumers and my use cases. Okay. Then I think just to finish up like that, you know, if we look at then the remaining three, which are more part of the, the process behind it, we've already mentioned Agile a number of times, but it is so fundamental to this. A, you know, it is really not possible or certainly not meaningful to try and build a data product without an Agile process. These things are so inextricably linked. And that means that you've got to be storing everything's code. That means you've got to be doing versioning. That means you've got to have you know, CICD process. To, you know, you've got to have automated testing built in. You know, in the same way that building a microservice you know, in the software world without doing Agile CICD is... Is it technically possible? Yes. Would anybody in their right mind consider doing it? No. It's just it's it's not it's not a meaningful it's not a meaningful thing to do. Um, the second one is discoverable, and, and this is should be one, but it's amazing the number of organizations that focus on building these amazing data products and don't think too much about well how are my consumers going to find the right, right. one? Right. You know what does discoverability look like? Because a data product that people can't find is worse than no data product. If you didn't build a data product, okay, well no one can use it, but at least you didn't spend any time and money on it. A data product that people can't find, you spent the time and money. So you've, you've got all the downside, but you, no one's using it. So you've got none of the upside. Um, so a, you know, an undiscoverable data product is worse than no data product at all in, in, in many ways. So discoverability yeah. is key. And, and it doesn't have to be super fancy. You know, this is about the maturity journey. In some cases, if I'm a company with two data products, uh, you know, a SharePoint page or a wiki page is, or a spreadsheet is good enough. You know, we're not saying that you have to have a, a, a heavyweight solution for every one of these problems, but every one of these problems does need to be covered in a way that's appropriate for where you are on that journey, how many data products you've got, what your maturity looks like. Right. And then the final one is, is product managed. And it, 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 we've kind of covered a lot of the terms anyway, but the way that you think about this, the way you have a backlog, the way that you think about releases, the fact that you've got a product owner, um, you know, the, the, even the way you interface with your, um, with your stakeholders you know, and, and, and your, your, your downstream consumers, um, these are well-solved problems. These are things in the data world that we don't need to solve again. 
we've got enough unique problems to ourselves. The fact that we're dealing with, you know, petabytes of data that we want to you know, move around in real time and da, da 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 you know, we've got plenty of our own unique data challenges without kind of biting off things that have already been well solved. So, you know, data product management is 99% the same as software product management. And if you want to know more, just go and read about software product management and, you know, search and replace the word software for data or microservice for data product, and you won't go too far wrong. So I think, you know, if you look across those 10, you know, seven kind of defining and, and attributes of the data product itself, and then those final three, which are about how I build, how I deploy, what my, you know, what, what the ecosystem looks like around those, those data products. And I think if you, if you look at things in those, in those 10 different ways, um, you won't go too far wrong. And some, certainly we, we've got companies now who can look at all 10 of those and say, yes, we are at a, you know, we rate ourselves as a, you know, seven or above in each of those areas. And they're the ones who are getting just enormous, enormous value at massive scale, you know, tens or hundreds of data products, you know, built in weeks, not months, um, being released, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times per month. That's the, that's the, the Nirvana state that everybody is, is aiming for. Right. Yeah, well, I, I can see that there's certainly a lot of potential value in, in looking at the things this way and taking this approach, but in, in your big picture world, what do you think is the biggest value to organizations about thinking about data products like this? I think it's, I think the value has got to be about that, back to that point we talked about with composability. I just think the, the concept of having all of the data, in, all the data from the rest of my organization as these, these foundational data products, which are all designed to be reused and all designed to be consumed by other data products you know it's it's very rare that in, inside an organization the answer to a, a really important business question just comes from i'm just going to ingest this one source of data do some work on it and then my answer is there you know, there are a few but you know the the biggest answers and, and the biggest insights and the biggest values of the business comes from looking at um, you know, things across that data. And right now, is it possible? Of course, we've done, you know, we've done five, six, seven years of breaking down silos and things like that. Um, but breaking down the silos historically has just meant kind of, you know, putting everything into one place. You know, what it hasn't dealt with is like, once we've got it into one place, then how do we logically break it up so that we can manage these things, deploy these things, version these things independently? So I think that composability, that thinking about your data products as it's a foundational data product where I'm bringing data into the system, or is it something that is, reading one or more other data products, doing something useful and republishing the result to be used by potentially other data products and so on and so on. I think if once you start thinking about the world that way, what you find is even very, very complicated use cases, even questions that historically were kind of, you know, almost unthinkable to answer actually can be answered very, very quickly. And they can be answered very, very cheaply with very little effort because what you're doing is saying, I'm going to stand on top of um, what most of the rest of the world has done. And again, if you want to go back to a software analogy, and, and Kent, you, you know, forgive me for saying, you, you, you probably remember some of this. You know, back in the day, we used to write most of our code ourselves. You know, if you think mm -hmm. about it yeah. now, I, I, I take Streamlet as a perfect example. You know, I can, I can put 25 lines of code down and get a fully interactive user application. You know, that would have taken me 2,000 lines of code in the past. Why? Right. Because I'm saying other people have done most of the work for me. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a software library or another data product. What I'm saying is, you know, have a piece of work done once and then have everybody else benefit from that. And it doesn't matter whether it's software libraries or data products, the, the principle is the same. Let other people do most of the work, add a little bit of your own stuff and produce new distinct unique value. And then make that available to other people to build on top of. You know, you can be the, you know, the person that's done the work so that they can build on top of. Well, Get that well, right yeah. and, and you are a truly data-driven organization. And I think to a certain extent, people have started to learn that in the last couple of years with the uh, uh, Snowflake marketplace and mm -hmm. the, the ability to purchase data sets. And they're really, they're already, those are data products, right? They're discoverable. You have the metadata 
and you can immediately incorporate that into an analysis you're doing. That, that's what we're talking about, right? Is having a, a, um, a, a refined, unique set of data available through an interface that's easily discoverable that you can, in a couple of clicks, access and now tie it into what you are doing and produce a, another, as you called it, a composable data product, right? Yep. So, um, you know, a, a lot of organizations are already kind of down the road of uh, working on or planning their data products journey. Um, but, you know, this, this looks like potentially a lot of work, you know, with the 10 components and you think about the seven pillars of mm -hmm. true data ops and all of that. Um, so what do you say to organizations that are thinking like, oh, you yeah, know, this might be a little too much. And, you know, maybe we'll take a look at this in the future. Yeah. So, I think it's think about that. It's, it's a great question, and it's one that's coming up a lot, and it's, it's, it's one that we're working on as part of the um, you know, the Data Products for Dummies book is, is to find this maturity journey, because ultimately what we're talking about is the end state. What we're talking about is where you want to get to, you know, and th those 10 principles are where you want to be. You know, a lot of those you need to give almost no thought to day one. You know, do, do I care about interoperability and composability when I have two data products? Absolutely not. Forget about it. Not, not relevant to you. You know, come back to it in six months' time. And some of these are ones where just a tiny amount of thought on day one, and then nothing for 12 months will buy you a huge benefit. I'll give you an example. How many people in the early days of building a software application when they built their REST interface said, I wish I'd have just put V1 in the URL because now I need to be, now I need to build a V2. I don't, need, I, don't even, I don't even need to think about what V2 might look like or how I'd build it. Just the one thought process says, at the future, I might need a new version of this. So I'm just going to put V1 somewhere in what I'm building so that in the future, there can be something else. So a lot of these are just, Think about it, and we're defining this maturity model. It says on day one, this is what you need to think about. And in some cases, it's don't think about it at all. Some cases, it's given, give it 60 seconds of thought and then don't worry about it. In some cases, like, for example, I would say things like product management and agile, you need to have those really on day one because they affect everything you do. They make everything from that so much more efficient. You know, not having those on day one is really, you know, kind of counterproductive. So there is definitely a maturity journey. Um, but say, I would say we've had customers who've gone from a standing start to building a very respectable data product in six weeks. So this doesn't have wow. to be really, really scary. Just with a little bit of help and a little bit of thought, you can start that journey, get the value, really get, get, get the relevant value really early on, and then iterate as you go. And, and remember that agile process, one of, the, one of the reasons that we all follow agile so closely is because it stops me having to think about too many things up front. It stops me having to try and forecast and crystal ball into the future like take a security model you know i've seen customers spend six months just trying to design the security model for a data product you know without saying well look what, what do i need that day one well no in two years time people might need this well why worry about that today build the security model you need for the first three months get it out there because chances are that what what you're forecasting won't happen anyway it'll be wrong so just you know spend a day thinking about it get it out there and then based on what you learn in the first three months then build the second iteration and the third iteration the fourth iteration over a period of years so um, you know, that principle of agile allows us to you know, put something very lean out on day one and then iterate through it over time. Right. Well, there's just so much so much to learn here, Guy. Uh, where can our listeners find find out more about this and about this approach? So we've got so there's some information on, on uh, the datrops.live website, but we're also in the process, as I mentioned, of building and, and writing the uh, data product for dummies book. So keep wow. an eye out on the website. That's going to go live in a few months' time. There'll be a free download from the website. And if you come to our events, I think we're doing a, a launch event at Big Data London. So if you're, if you're in that part of the world, come to Big Data London, and you'll be able to get uh, signed copies as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for being on the show again, Guy. You've 
give me, a, okay. yeah, as always, a lot to think about. And there's more and more to learn all the time. You certainly aren't going to be, uh, uh, people aren't going to be bored in this space. But unfortunately, we're, we're out of time for the, the show today. Um, so we're going to have to have to cut it off there. Uh, you know, thanks again, Guy, for being here. And thanks, everybody, for, for listening in today. Um, you know, don't forget to like and share the recording so all your friends know about the True Date Ops podcast and can pick up all this. There's a, a QR code on the screen now to get you to the YouTube playlist uh, to make that a little easier. Wonderful new technology that we can do these things live online. Uh, but we're going to take a little summer break now. As I said, it's uh, summer in the Northern Hemisphere and, you know, sp spend some uh, time with family and friends and relaxing for a little bit. We will be back again on September 6th. So uh, keep your eyes open on uh, on uh, LinkedIn for the announcements and to see who a guest will be for kicking off the fall season. So again, have, have a great summer and uh, see you in the fall. This is Kent Graziano, the Data Warrior, signing off for now. Cheers. Bye-bye.